Hello everyone and welcome back to Thus Spoke Zarathustra, a reader's guide. Uh, so in the last section on the professorial chairs of virtue, we met a wise man who spoke well of sleep and spoke well of the different things we should be focusing on in our day-to-day -day lives. And while Zarathustra and Nietzsche agree with many of the things he says, and we will see later on in this book, similar sentiments coming up, laughing a lot, discovering new truth, overcoming yourself. Nietzsche and Zarathustra radically disagree with this old man about the attitude that we should take towards our lives. This old man says we need to do these things so that we can sleep well at night. Whereas Nietzsche and Zarathustra would say, yes, we need these things as human beings based on our psychology to have some level of fulfillment that these types of things, these types of activities are important to us, but our attitude should be one of much more aggressive passion, that we shouldn't just be laughing 10 times a day, overcoming ourselves 10 times a day, and then thinking about all that stuff to fall asleep, that we should be doing those things with a harsh degree of seriousness, that we should be passionately engaged in those aspects of our lives because it will help us propel ourselves further through time. Uh, the first section, uh, which I've spoken about now a few times on the three transformations, is about the changes in mindset that you will go through as a learner in the areas that you care so deeply about. Uh, so whatever it is you care about, the, the first mindset you should have towards that is that, that like the camel where you take on the heavy truths, you look to the, the great examples of people in the area that you care about and work very hard to take on all the responsibility and pressure of what it takes to be great in that area so that you build up your muscles, you build up your skill, and you truly revere the idols and examples of greatness in that area. The second transformation is the mindset becoming a lion where after revering something so much and taking from that reverence, taking from those examples, the thou shalt, the duty to do things in a certain way or approach things in a certain way, value things in a certain way, the line is needed to free yourself from the constraints placed on you by those idols so that you can eventually make it to the third mindset, that of the child, where once you have finally approached some level of mastery in that area, you can bring everything unique, new, and creative about yourself to then play with those ideas and extend them further and create a new level of mastery that hopefully in the future, some people who are starting out with the spirit of the camel in that area may look to you as an example and build themselves based on that. So those two sections, I, I have said a number of times, I'm very impressed that Nietzsche put up front that those were the first two things that Nietzsche decided to say about the, the mindset that's appropriate for undertaking the tasks that we're taking on and the attitude that we should take towards them of passionate engagement and really sets up the rest of the book to think about things in that way and to take the things he's saying seriously and to take a good hard long look at everything that you're doing in your life to be very critical about it, to be very serious about what you're undertaking, uh, because that will just propel you into the future in this upward evolutionary curve where you can 
so to speak, become the best version of yourself possible. And it requires a lot of that passionate engagement. It requires taking things very seriously in order to do that. The section today that we're going to talk about on believers in a world behind is similarly important to put up front. However, it's very different from the first two sections that we talked about. This one is much more philosophical in nature. The first two are sort of attitudinal or describing what your mind is going to be going through, both positive and negative, on your journey of furthering yourself. But section three, Unbelievers in a World Behind, is very philosophical. And I was having a great deal of difficulty trying to figure out how I was going to be presenting this section and the next section. They're, they're somewhat related. And I couldn't quite put my finger on why it was so complicated, but now I've finally done so, and hopefully that will help me guide you guys through this. Essentially, if you guys are familiar with the, the notion of revelation, like a religious revelation about the nature of the world and the nature of God and the nature of being and our place in relation with that, mystical revelation or religious revelation is an experience held by very few people. Uh, some people get there through meditation. Some people, like myself, get there through very logical consideration of the world as such. Some people get there through taking psychedelic drugs. But most of the time when you're talking about God or talking about reality or talking about things like that, you're not going to get through to many people. It's not an experience that most people are common with. And people will generally just shut down when you start talking about God and him loving us and we're all a part of God and blah, blah, blah. And so one of the difficulties is that this section, in that it deals with how a human being lives with the ideas of platonic reality and lives with the ideas of a Christian God and truly tries to understand his place in the world and his actions in the world in light of that fundamental truth of reality being good or reality being God or us being a part of God, and the confusion that comes within the mindset of an individual with trying to reconcile the thing that they come to realize as being the truest thing they know, this, this living in reality as God thing. That revelation and the, the confusion undergone by someone who tries to live with that is an experience shared by very few. It's very important to understand where a lot of our present ideas about the world and how to treat other people and how to treat ourselves and all that, it's very important to understand where that comes from. And Nietzsche here is writing specifically to people who have understood the Christian mindset, understood the Platonic mindset, and tried to live with it. And beyond dealing with people who've had that revelation, which is by its nature a very small number, in this section and a little bit in the section right after it, Nietzsche is trying to create a second revelation on top of that one that shows that it's wrong. And so I had a great deal of difficulty trying to figure out how I was going to chart my course through these next couple of sections. 
because in the course of, say, three or four pages, Nietzsche brings up one revelation that not many people have had and then cuts it down in a second revelation that even fewer people have had. And so if some of this doesn't make sense to you, I'm going to try and do my best to explain it. I have a couple stories about my own experience with these things that I think maybe helps to explain it a bit better. But it will be more philosophical in nature. Uh, a lot of the things that I brought up in episode two, key concepts and history, will make an appearance here because we're dealing with Plato and we're dealing with Christianity. So I would recommend either going back and listening to that lecture or just sitting tight through here in this lecture, because I'm going to try my best to really simplify a lot of the things that we're talking about. So unlike most of the other sections, I'm not going to read this one straight through and then describe it afterwards. I'm going to chunk it up a bit and tell a few stories about my own experience with the idea, how I came into contact with these ideas, how I lived with these ideas, and hopefully in doing so, give you guys some understanding for where Nietzsche is coming from about his views of reality and how human beings interact with those views of reality and how we operate based on holding such ideas. Because what you do, how you see things, the actions that you take, and how people interact with you and how you interact with people are all based fundamentally on what you believe to be true in the world, and how, how you operate based on that. So, that's a bit of an introduction. Hopefully I haven't scared too many people off. But let's get into it. Section 3. On Believers in a World Behind. At one time, Zarathustra too cast his delusion beyond the human, like all believers in a world behind. The work of a suffering and tortured God the world seemed to me then. A dream the world seemed to me then, and the fable of a God. Colored smoke before the eyes of one divinely discontented. Good and evil, and pleasure and pain, and I and thou. Colored smoke they seemed to me before creative eyes. To look away from himself was what the Creator wanted, so he created the world. Drunken pleasure it is for the sufferer to look away from his suffering and lose himself. Drunken pleasure and loss of oneself the world once seemed to me. This world, eternally imperfect, image of an eternal contradiction and imperfect image, a drunken pleasure for its imperfect creator. Thus the world once seemed to me. Thus I too once cast my delusion beyond the human, like all believers in a world behind. Beyond the human in truth? Ah, brothers, this God that I created was human's work and madness, just like all gods. So I spoke a bit in episode two about the view that Plato had of reality and how Christianity is essentially Platonism for the masses. 
I want to describe to you how I came across these ideas and what it was like living with them and how similar to what Nietzsche is saying here. It all seemed like a bunch of creative smoke and discontentment and drunkenness and how confusing it was to try and reconcile those ideas once I had realized that the world seemed to work that way into a worldview and ethic and roadmap for action for me as a human being trying to reconcile those ideas. So, <clears throat> to make an extremely long story short, and when I say that, this will probably take 10-15 minutes, I grew up in a very conservative household, politically speaking. Um, my mom and dad were both very conservative, and they're both fairly logical people and hardworking and diligent, and whenever, whenever it would come up and I was young... I would talk to my dad and sort of ask him why he thought the things that he thought. And with the benefit of hindsight, or just common sense, I recognized that what I was doing was I was being a young person, where I'm born into this crazy world where it doesn't seem to make a heck of a lot of sense, and I was trying to figure out the answer to two questions. What kind of life should I lead, and what do I need to do to make that happen? And so based on a lot of the conservative ideas that I was lucky to hear from my mother and father, uh, although more typically my father, he started out by saying that conservatives think with their heads, liberals think with their hearts. And I liked the sound of that, and being a good little boy, I took what my father said to heart and said it was true, and as I got older... Uh, I continue to develop this conservative political mindset and being still a curious young fellow who wants to be absolutely sure of what he's doing, I, I did more research into what these ideas were, where they stemmed from, and what I should do with them. Because again, I was trying to figure out what kind of life should I lead and how do I get there. And to answer that first question, I mean, it's pretty easy in today's world to come across the same answer that everyone will give you, that the point of life is to be happy, to pursue happiness. Uh, it's everywhere. Your teachers will tell you, oh, what, what do you want to do with your life? Do whatever makes you happy. Your parents will just say the same thing. Oh, do whatever you want as long as you're happy. I love you. Uh, even in the U.S. Declaration of Independence that man has the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that this idea of the pursuit of happiness seemed to be enshrined in everything. And being a young person who had experienced happiness, compared to all the other emotions that I had felt, that seemed like a pretty good deal. And so that was a pretty good answer, and then everything sort of fell upon the, the answers to the next question, how do I get there? And when you're coming up with any sort of ethical framework for how you should do something, okay, I have my goal, be happy, how do I get there? Just by nature of the human organism and our inseparability from other people and communities, uh, the answer for how do I get there is necessarily one where you have to take other people into account. Man does not live in a vacuum. And... 
And so my thinking on this went, as is typical for a conservative person, to the notion of rights, of human rights and property rights and what that means for us. And so my nascent conservative political bent started to go more and more into the philosophical underpinnings of conservatism, of limited government, of this typically conservative, proud, lofty view of humans as free individuals who are capable of providing for themselves and capable of creating a life for themselves and their families with minimal intervention from other people. Uh, whereas liberals tend to believe that people need help, people need the government to help them, they need the state to force other people into paying taxes so that we can provide social services for everyone. The increased amount of pride and respect that I had for the notion of the autonomous individual, not to mention the, the fact that I was a young man trying to have a good view and, you know, your parents believe one thing, so you, you start to believe that same thing. I started more and more into right-wing and ever-increasingly libertarian thoughts about the world. And so I really got into this notion of rights, and it's, it's implicit in left-wing and right-wing ideologies, but the idea is that each individual has the right to him or herself, that we have the right to life, the, the right to liberty, the right to the pursuit of happiness, and that certain human rights, the right to free speech, the right to freedom of conscience, the right to freedom of religion, a lot of the rights that you find in not just the American Constitution, but other constitutions throughout the world, those things really spoke to me, and I, I embarked upon this process of trying to figure out, okay, well, if each individual is sovereign, and we're all equal, A, there should be no kings or queens or anything, that seems ridiculous, because why is that person given this right to boss me around? It doesn't make sense. Uh, every human being is just a human being, and it's not like God the Father, some dude with a beard came down and threw a crown at someone and said, you take care of all these weird English people, you're the king now. So I was being essentially a good, a good right-wing thinker in the enlightenment sense of the term, where I said, well, you know, we're all human beings, we're all individual, and we're all equal in the sense that we're all just human beings. And so I started building up this big framework that was very libertarian about respecting each individual's autonomy, that you can do whatever you want as long as it doesn't negatively impact other people, uh, that they can do whatever they want as long as it doesn't negatively impact you, and that as such, we as independent, sovereign human beings who are capable of leading our own lives and doing the things that we need to do to get by should be able to, through time, figure it out and then economics and classically liberal economics with a small l and things like the Austrian School of Economics, the Chicago School of Economics, which, which see economics as the study less about business and more about the study of individual actions really started taking hold in my head. I started thinking that <laughs> if you ask some of my friends in university, they'll probably be able to tell you a couple funny stories about how for years I was trying to model every human interaction, me talking to someone at a bar, me trying to ask someone out, me working with a group of people. I tried to model all those interactions based on my, my worldview 
of libertarianism, of equal rights for all, uh, because in that pursuit of happiness, I was trying to figure out how can I be the most happy while respecting the people around me. And so you can start to see that my worldview and my goal started to work together to try and create an ethical system of how I should see the world, how I should see other people, and how I should interact with them. As I took this idea further and further and continued to think about it because I'm a curious person and I wanted to base the answers to my question, A, what kind of life should I lead? B, how do I get there? I wanted to base those on the most secure foundation I could, philosophically speaking, because there's there was some pesky notion in my head that said, if I find the truth as much as possible on these things, the actions that I take out of them will correspond most closely with getting me to the goal that I want. So if I want to be happy, I better be damn sure that I'm doing the right things because being damn sure like that will make sure that I'm doing the right things to make me happy. And it all came crashing down. I took an exchange semester in Manchester, England during my third year of university. And throughout my development of this worldview and my development of this sort of economics-minded school of thought, I, I started to notice one pesky difficulty with my entire worldview. I'd built this big, multi-branched, multi-faceted way of seeing the world and human interaction, and it was all reliant upon this notion of rights, that as human beings, we can have rights over certain things, over property, that we can accumulate property and trade with people, and that's how corporations are formed, that's how companies are formed, that's how people guide their action, with this implicit notion that we can own something, we can own our own labor, we can own ourselves, and that we have an inalienable right to those things. And as a result of one of my good friends constantly hectoring me about that idea and then also my own curiosity driving me forward to base everything I know on something concrete and real. I took a course in Manchester. I was lucky to take it. It was a very good prof named John Salter. It was a course on political and economic philosophy. And so we read a bunch of the greats. We read Hobbes and Locke and this Dutch guy named Grotius, who I'd never come across before, but he was pretty good. And I came across a lot of things that I had already seen uh, in building my sort of libertarian right-wing way of thinking. And uh, John Locke is probably one of the most influential people or one of the biggest voices in support of the idea of individual rights being able to be extended to property, that I can own something by putting my labor into it, and then I can trade with someone else, and then based on those few key axioms about owning labor and treating other people with respect, people will eventually start to, based on that, start building things, building communities, building factories, building uh, little workshops where they they take raw materials that are owned by no one and then they put their labor into it and then they own it and then they trade with someone else and then that creates an incentive for them to produce something and all of a sudden based on this notion of individual rights and property rights if they're enforced by the government enforced by the law you get the development 
of big economies where people's lives get better because they have access to more material goods, which takes them away from illness. It protects them from the wild. It, it gives them lots of things that have utility. And so I was like, oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, I've read Locke before, and he's a good justification. But his whole idea about why we have rights to things seems a little off. His whole argument is basically, if you find a raw material that no one owns, so you're walking through the woods and you find a branch, if you take that branch and carve it into a baseball bat or a cane or a table or whatever, essentially Locke says, okay, you as a sovereign individual have the right to yourself and the right to everything about your body and who you are, and included in that is the right to the fruits of your labor. So if you take a raw material and imbue it with value, if you carve it into a baseball bat or a table or whatever, your, your individual sovereignty, your individual right to yourself is now mixed with that thing because you've mixed your own productive capability into a raw material that no one owned and therefore now you own it. And it, it, it was a useful argument for me when I was first getting into this stuff because it was sort of just a good stopgap. But then when I started to really think about it, there are a good couple counterexamples that people have come up with in the following couple centuries that really show that it's sort of ridiculous. That says, okay, well, based on this labor transitive property of value, if I take a can of liquid and it's got radioactive isotopes in it so I can like track them and okay so I've bitten I've come up with this cup of liquid and I own it then I mix that into the ocean and then it spreads throughout the ocean and I can measure it because the radioactive isotopes can be scanned and whatnot does me mixing that into the ocean then make me own the ocean and it's sort of a silly argument but it does show you that this whole notion of actually mixing your labor with something doesn't really stand up to a lot of scrutiny. And so that was a pretty big axe blow to my entire worldview. I said, well, yeah, that does seem pretty ridiculous, even though uh, capitalist economics builds very nicely off of that, and I think that capitalist economics has led to a much better world in the last two centuries than the world has ever been before, at least for most people, on average, you, from a utilitarian perspective, most people are much better off now than they were three centuries ago. It didn't seem to make a lot of sense, and then we studied David Hume, and Hume was the final axe blow that took this whole thing down. Um, Hume said, you know, like, this whole notion of rights that we, we think we have, like, there, there's no basis for that in reality. There's no underlying metaphysical value to each person. There's no, there's no reason we have these things that came down from up on high that the notion of rights was a human invention. And so he gives a bit of a chronology of it. He said, you know, just imagine human communities thousands of years ago. Uh, if someone stole from you, you would get pissed off and you'd want to steal from them or kill them. And communities that didn't have the notion of rights would just be continual anarchy, people killing each other, stealing from each other, because that negative feeling is so natural within us that we just want to go berserk and kill everyone. And so Hume said, no, the, the idea of rights and the idea of property and the idea of all that stuff was a human invention to try and 
stop people from going crazy so that if I put value and time into something, the community came up with these ideas to try and enforce a certain idea of reality that said, okay, no, like I, I built this, it's my property, you can't come take it. And that essentially communities that did that would prosper much better than other communities. And so I said, damn, that makes a lot more sense. It seems more natural. It seems to actually be a correct interpretation. And it brought my whole worldview that was based on this individual sovereignty and this sort of metaphysical value that we can extend into different things and then trade with other equal individuals. It brought that whole thing down. And the reason it brought it down was because in my quest to lead a happy life, I was trying to figure out how I should do that. And the how I should do that part, I was trying to find the most fundamental justification for. And in doing so, I came up with this whole, like, okay, well, there seems to be some, some non-debatable sovereignty and individuality that everyone has that we can then extend into the things we own and trade them. But... If there is no non-debatable metaphysical value to people, then, and it's just a human invention, I'm sort of sitting there going, well, if it's just a human invention, then what the hell is that? That's not valuable. That's not, that's not real. That's not deep. That's not a, a, a universal truth that I can latch anything onto. That's not the bedrock of reality that I need to drive my foundations of my worldview into. It seems to be just a relic of our, our biology and our evolution that like we sort of came up with this idea and then through time we enshrined them and built them into these idealistic things. It, it seemed paltry in comparison to anything to do with universal truth. And so what ensued after I knocked down that worldview was... <laughs> A long period of doubt and nihilism. I, because of that, all of the lofty things that I heard around me about human rights and the right to this and the right to that, I sort of realized these, these are just human inventions that these people are taking way too seriously. They have nothing to do with actual reality. It's just sort of a human artifice that, although it does lead to many good things and lead to better situations if we believe in them, like it's not real. It's not a, a fact of the universe. And so I recognized that not only was my worldview in that it was based on these human ideas flawed, but that all worldviews that are based on human ideas are flawed. And so I remember traveling uh, for about a month on the continent after having this realization, and I was so my ability to make decisions, my ability to even have conversations or come up with a response to someone saying something, I, I, I couldn't do it. I, I had this weird inability to like know what to say because my entire ethical framework of what to do and how to do it and how to say things to people and how to treat people, those had all been undergirded by my worldview, which was now gone. So I had no idea how to act. And so it was a very weird, strange, uh, on the one hand, very liberating, on the one hand, very confusing experience because all of a sudden, every opportunity, every type of response, every action was open to me because at that point in time, I didn't think 
there was any longer a difference between different courses of actions, at least not in the metaphysical sense. If I insult this person, which I probably wouldn't normally do, it doesn't matter because at bottom, there's no one who's going to judge me for it, and you can't judge me metaphysically for that. There's a good Dostoevsky line that if God's dead, everything is permitted. And so my worldview, which had previously proscribed certain actions that I couldn't perform, now they were open to me, and I said, well, there seems to be, like, I don't believe there's a god or anything like that. There's no big man in the sky who's going to throw a lightning bolt at me if I insult this person, so maybe I'll do it. Maybe I'll just go a little crazy. And as a result of all this, through that month and then into the summer, I had what I would describe as my very first of many uh, nihilistic periods where I no longer had any idea about the value of things. I thought that all the values of things were created by humans and therefore weren't real valuations. That we couldn't, we couldn't prefer one thing to another. And it was a very debilitating time for me. And when I got into fourth year university, I started to work through it. And I said, okay, well, this is horrible. Everything seems to have lost its value. But I still know that my overarching goal is to be happy. So the second part of that, how do I do it, instead of looking for some metaphysical basis upon which to build a worldview, maybe I'll just look at things very biologically and see, okay, well, what does make me happy? When I do this, does it make me happy? When I do that, does it make me happy? And through the course of that year, it was actually very interesting, I started getting more and more into psychology, and my own psychology in particular. And luckily conversations in my own head about what makes me happy coincided with the 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 hiring period on campus to get a job so luckily there was a bit of a synergy there about okay well what do you want to do you want to find a job that makes you happy well what makes you happy well good thing I've been thinking about that recently and and I asked myself the question I said okay like what in what situations are you in the state of mind that you most prefer which is a bit different. It's not necessarily when are you the most happy. It's it's something a bit broader than that. And I came up with two different classic examples for myself that got me into this mindset that when I was in that mindset, everything was great. And if I could spend more and more of my time in that mindset, thumbs up. And the two examples for me were, one, when I'm having an interesting philosophical discussion with a friend or two, when I'm in my business program in a group meeting working on a very complex problem trying to figure out the answer to it and then trying to explain it to my friends. And I think more than most people in my program I really enjoyed that aspect. I really enjoyed getting say a business case which is essentially like they tell you the story of a business and all these different problems that are happening and you've got to come up with a solution. And I loved getting into those because I would read the thing over and over and think about it for days. And then in a meeting or at home, I would just have this lightning flash of insight about what the one critical problem is and how that ties through all the other different problems that are going on in that case. And then trying to wrap my head around that and then trying to describe it to my team and most teams when they're doing business cases they see 20 problems they come up with 20 different solutions which I think is a waste of time and takes way too much effort but I would sit there and I'd come up with this one thing that 
would just weave everything together. It would be so elegant, and I loved getting that rush and then trying to, in a group meeting, explain that to people and get them bought in and then have them raise objections and then have to deal with that. That situation and then the philosophical discussions that I was having, which were typically discussing things that I hadn't necessarily thought of before and trying to extend my logic into a new arena or to try and explain something in a different way. And both those situations got me into a mindset of being fully engaged in what it was that I was doing, that everything else was completely out of my mind. I wasn't self-conscious at any point during all of this. I wasn't thinking about, oh, well, what do these people think of me? How do they see me right now? Am I making sense to them? I was fully engaged in what I was talking about, and I, I was dealing with something just at the horizon of my capability to deal with it. And it was in an area, generally, that really spoke to me. So dealing with things from a more intellectual perspective. And, and so I came up with those two examples. I was like, okay, that's great. Like, those two arenas are pretty different. Um, but there are some commonalities in there. Now, as a bit of an aside, <laughs> there have been many times in my life where I've decided to think about something and struggle for weeks or months with it. Why, where I should have just Googled it because what I had just stumbled across was, is essentially flow state. So if you Google flow state, there's a whole bunch of videos, TED Talks, articles on flow state that's essentially talking about what I'm talking about here. And it's talking about humans get in this flow state when you're dealing with subject matter that you enjoy dealing with and you're fully engaged in it and it's just slightly beyond your current capacity for dealing with things in that area. So for athletic people, pushing yourself in, in a particular area of your sport that you haven't been pushed before, and you love that sport, and you're, you're firing on all cylinders trying to, trying to get better in that area, you get into this thing called flow state, which I had found out was like the best state to be in, and I'm sure some of you guys know what I'm talking about and can relate to that. And so um, I started getting into that sort of thinking and trying to model, okay, well, if I want to be happy, this flow state thing seems to be pretty cool. So like, let's say I want to get into flow state more. That's my goal. And then the, the ethical side of it, part two, the question of how do I get there? I started trying to think about, okay, well, what gets me there? Well, obviously more intellectual things where I'm trying to do something just beyond my capability. That seems to be pretty good. And then I made the interesting step of saying, you know what, like this flow state thing's pretty good. Maybe there's a way to cut out the middleman of needing certain environmental criteria to line up to get me there. Maybe I can get there myself. And maybe I don't need a philosophical conversation. Maybe I don't need a case to get me there. Maybe I can take that mindset and use it on the world in general. And so this is where we start getting back into Nietzsche and start getting back into believers in a world behind. Because this is where I had my big revelation, this big mystical insight, this big realization of myself being part of this other magical thing that we're all a part of, this weird magical reality that we can't know anything about, that's somehow beyond our grasps. And I remember... Uh, this was like right after final exams 
I was meant to go have lunch with a couple of my good friends and I was supposed to before that get a haircut so the whole day I said okay you know what exams are over I'm gonna experiment with this I'm gonna see if I can be in that flow state be totally engaged be unselfconscious uh, be unaware of the passage of time and just engage with the world in general rather than engaging with a philosophical discussion or a case or whatever so I remember I went to go get my hair cut. Usually I didn't enjoy small talk at that point, but I had a great time just shooting the breeze with the hairdresser. And then I remember walking from downtown Kingston to the courthouse, and it was a miserable April Kingston day. And it was raining, it was windy, it was cold, and I, at the time, only had one of those stupid small umbrellas that opens up to like two and a half feet and keeps maybe half your head dry but nothing else and up until that point in time if I had been walking anywhere or doing anything I'd probably be in my head thinking about okay well what 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 interviews do I have coming up what projects do I have coming up uh, what's this girl that I'm interested in doing and what she's saying so I'd walk around with all these things running through my head and be distracted by that while the rest of the world's going on around me. And if on a rainy day, I'd be walking around like, shit, this is rainy, my shoes are getting ruined, my legs are going to be all wet, this is horrible. But this day, instead of criticizing reality or thinking about a whole bunch of different things, I was trying to do the flow state thing of just engaging in the world, not being critical of it, and just accepting it as it was, and just observing it. So again, similar to the flow state thing, which I should have just Googled. I should have just Googled meditation because that's essentially what I, what I stumbled upon myself. And as I was walking, um, the rain and the cold, it didn't bother me. I, I had this big sense of growing elation at realizing that a lot of the negative things that I had thought about the world of, oh, I'm worried about this interview, oh, I'm worried about uh, this assignment, oh, it's rainy, my shoes are going to get wet and ruined. I recognized that a lot of those negative feelings, a lot of the negative feelings that you experience on your day-to-day -day world are a function of your brain interpreting something rather than something being objectively negative. And so similarly to what I did with my libertarian worldview where I said, oh, I can't believe in this any longer because it's just a human conception, this idea of rights. Similarly to that, getting myself worked up over my ruined shoes or getting myself worked up about an interview I had coming up or an assignment that was due or an exam coming up, I recognized that those things made me worried. Those things made me angry. Those things made me anxious. Not because they in themselves were problematic, but it was my decision-making and my my projecting of a negative value onto those things that made them negative. And so I'm taking this walk and it was beautiful and all these all this crappy rain's coming down and you know I'm moving away soon and that's sort of sad and I gotta pack up. I just put all that out of my mind and I engaged with the world and then I got to the courthouse about 10 minutes early. The restaurant we we're going to was right across the street and the courthouse is this big beautiful limestone building with a big field out in front of it and you can see the lake from there and even though it was cold and crappy, I had 10 minutes to just sort of wait. And instead of going into the bar and getting a seat and maybe getting a drink, I was so happy that I just decided to stand there and pay attention to the world. And by shutting off 
that human critical thinking faculty and just observing the world. I had a I had an experience that is so magical and was so out of my realm of experience that I had no idea what was going on. But it was one of the most profoundly joyful experiences of my life where instead of just sort of wandering around thinking about, oh, this assignment, this test, whatever, I just shut all that stuff up. I got out of my own head and I experienced the world. And instead of putting categories on things like that's a car, that's a bird, that's a courthouse, that's a road, I I took the step again of saying, well, you know, those categories and those distinctions are, are a hangover of human biology and our brain distinguishing one thing from another. So I even got as far away from that as I could, and I just, everything at that point opened up to me as a continual, continuous, non-distinguishable happening. And getting out of my own head and the constant thinking about things and the constant worrying about things and all the effort I was putting into my thinking and wandering and all that, when I was looking at the world, everything seemed to be happening without effort. It seemed to be happening of its own accord. And everything was imbued with this almost magical, mystical energy of, wow, like this whole universe is constantly happening. It's going on forever. It'll go on forever. Even when I die, it'll still be here doing its thing. And it seems to be moving around. And like this, more than anything, I remember seeing some seagulls flying around and seeing them fly around and saying, wow, those seagulls, they somehow can do everything that they need to do, even though they have a tiny brain and they're idiots and whatever. They're not thinking about anything. They're just doing things. And the whole universe seemed to me at that point to be this one interrelated, connected totality that not only was the entire world part of that thing, but so was I. So it was a... I can't explain enough how profoundly joyful that experience was and how crazy it seemed and how out of anything I'd ever experienced before and so anyway, I went on, had my lunch, had a great time, continued being unselfconscious, and then between moving home a couple days later and my job, I had about six months off to be left to my own devices. And I essentially spent the bulk of that time trying to figure out what the heck that experience was of seeing this sort of universal unity of all things and the profound joyfulness that came out of it. Because it seemed to be extremely important to those two questions that I started out when I was a young kid trying to answer about what kind of life do I want to lead and how do I lead it and experiencing that profound joy and that profound connectedness and getting away from all my human negativity and human criticality and human harshness and being able to live free of all those judgments and in unison with everything around me it seemed to be the, the ultimate and truest foundation upon which I could answer those two questions. I had come across this thing that said, okay, well, even beyond all human conceptions, this whole universe thing exists. 
and that existence and that being in harmony with it and getting rid of my negativity seems to be a wonderful, profound source of joy. And I should try as hard as I can to continually live in that perspective, in that mindset, because that seems to lead to this profound amount of joy. And then secondarily, there are certain ethical ramifications for how do I continue to live in that realm of joy, and how do I treat myself and others on the basis of that. And my research pretty much immediately in the first month went into uh, mystical religion and writers and researchers on mystical religion. One of the best ones uh, for that sort of thing is Alan Watts. Uh, he's a British-American philosopher. He was sort of most active during the 60s and 70s, 1960s and 70s. And he wrote a lot about all the different world religions and about the nature of God and the nature of reality. And from reading him and from reading some other anthologies of the different mystical religions, um, from reading a great book by Aldous Huxley uh, called The Perennial Philosophy, from reading all those things I started to recognize, oh, okay, what I experienced, that totality and oneness and the sort of seeing reality as this magical thing that seems to be the granite level foundation of everything, this, this sense of being, just being as such in a non-distinguished way that where the bird and the courthouse and the, the street and the car, even though in my brain those are separate entities, that's, that's a result of human evolution being and our hunting mindset being able to distinguish certain things and categorize them and, and language itself structuring how we think about things as separate entities. All those things seem to fall away, and I seem to hit this this granite-level basement of, wow, things are. And you'll often hear hippies <laughs> say, wow, like existence is, like things are. And I think the reason they say that is because it is a profoundly joyful experience for the person who's, who, who gets there. And, and so this is the first experience that Nietzsche is dealing with in this chapter and then throughout the rest of his works and throughout the rest of Zarathustra is this religious experience of, of recognizing God, recognizing one's unity with God and trying to deal with that question of how do I live, how do I live my life in such a way to be most in accordance with these things. And so based on this experience, uh, this whole thing opened up whole new levels of thought to me. Uh, even things that I'd previously disregarded, uh, such as the notion of individuals having any sort of natural rights or anything, those came flooding back and I had a much deeper appreciation for those. I said, oh, well, you know, like we're all part of this crazy reality thing that seems to have given birth to us. So, okay, that sort of sounds a lot like when Jesus says that God the Father, like we are all part of God the Father and we're all sons of God and uh, no one comes to the Father but through me. you got to approach the world as I approach it in order to have this experience. Uh, one must become again as a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. So you got to approach reality with the wonderment and amazement of a child who doesn't know categories yet, who doesn't, who can't, categorize the world and put put a map over the world 
as opposed to just seeing the world as it is, uh, which is similar to people who have this experience by taking psychedelic drugs. Essentially, the psychedelic drugs, they clear your ego, they clear your human decision-making and categorizing faculty away, and they let your whole brain experience the world as it is. Uh, Carl Jung has a great line that says that dogmatic religions were invented to prevent people from having religious experiences. Because having this religious experience of recognizing your oneness with reality and, and, and the ramifications of that, it's a very powerful experience. And so even the notion of human rights came back to me that said, oh, well, you know, we're all part of this one grand, amazing reality that gave birth to us. And I feel so, I feel so one with this immense, infinite being. Uh, I feel so loved by it. And if I'm here, this wonderful, infinite, unknowable reality, this God thing, like it put me here. So I must be very special. And so must everyone else be. And so that's where the notion of in Christianity, equal rights comes from, and, and treating your neighbor as yourself, and don't go to war with other states, and don't go to war with other peoples, and turn the other cheek, and don't harm anyone, because in a sense, on this metaphysical sense, you're only harming yourself. If you are reality conscious of itself, then so is everyone else who's conscious. So even though on the ephemeral, superficial level, I am a different person from you, is a different person from this, is a different person from from the, the world outside, on a metaphysical level, on the most foundational level that human beings can have an experience with, we're all the same thing. And these messages and these lessons are echoed throughout all the different world religions. Uh, it, it seems that all prophets of all times have had this same realization, and then the different religions are simply different interpretations of that, and different dogmatic philosophies put on top uh, that are more appropriate for a certain type of people in a certain world who have different needs. And so I spent a long time uh, that summer for six months trying to live with this because I'd finally found something that seemed true, just true beyond belief. It was the most fundamental thing that you could experience and you can't really describe reality because in a word you can't capture how magical everything is. I used the example before in episode two about watching one of those YouTube videos about uh, a, a strawberry growing or a flower opening or whatever and you start thinking about it and you're saying, wow, like that's actually happening. Scientists would try and tell you, oh, well, you know, that's just this chemical reaction happening and well, yeah, with the right amount of sunlight and rain, this thing happens. Like, But if you actually just watch the video or just see something happening in real life, and you approach it with that wonderment and amazement like a child, you're sort of blown away, and you say, okay, science, you're trying to explain the steps of how this happens, but the fundamental magic that this is happening, that it seems to be growing of its own accord, you, you're, you're not even scratching the surface of. That reality is this incredibly magical thing that even though we have science and the scientists get up on their high horse and say that they can explain everything, they really can't. They can explain the steps of how something happens, but they can't explain the, the deep magic that exists in the reality around us and how it just sort of does things. And so me being the curious person I was, I was so happy to find this. It seemed so true and everything 
just took on new light for me uh, because I seemed to have reached into this deepest well of truth available and it seemed to be this loving, wonderful thing uh, and everything got its value from this thing and I said, oh, well, this makes sense. Like all the religions saying that like reality and life is infinitely valuable. It's like, well, yeah, <laughs> you live in this fantastic reality that somehow for some reason deigned to give birth to you and you get to experience this magic all the time. It's so fantastic. And even my, my understanding of philosophy uh, rapidly accelerated. I had started reading Nietzsche towards the end of fourth year. I had started reading Thus Spoke Zarathustra, um, but not a lot of it made much sense. I didn't really know what he was talking about. But then I started going back to, say, Plato or Schopenhauer or Kant, and Kant I'd come across once or twice in university. And, it, God, part of it's his writing style and the translations, but here he is talking about the thing in itself and mere appearance and Schopenhauer sort of saying the same thing, that there's will and representation and there's, like, what, what the hell's the thing in itself and what's appearance? And you start to say, oh, okay, I get it. There's reality, the thing in itself, this sort of granite solid thing that exists and then there's the human experience of it there's our interpretation of it our sensory ability to experience that object and if you remember the example i gave in lecture two and the key concepts in history i started using the the example of color vision that uh, humans have very, very, very good color vision compared to pretty much every other animal, whereas dogs see in black and white. Now, I, I've actually corrected that. Dogs see in black and white in, like, shades of green-brown or, like, some weird mix, but it's nowhere near the full spectro vision that we've got. And so if we were to look at a green leaf, humans see that as a very sharp green, whereas dogs might see that as sort of a muted brown. And so there's an example by way of triangulation that says, okay, there's a leaf. The thing in itself is this leaf thing, and the appearance to us is something that is green, and it has a certain smell, and it has certain qualities that we can experience empirically. To a dog who has different sensory organs, it might appear as a muted brown. It might have a stronger smell to the dog. It might, have, uh, it might sound different falling to the dog than it does to us. And so Kant comes along and says, okay, well, there's this thing in itself which is indisputable. It's there, but we can't fully know anything about it. To us, it seems green. To the dog, it seems brown. And that's the appearance to us. That appearance says nothing about the objective truth of that leaf and its real qualities. That in a, in a sense, we're as limited as the dog is in seeing and experiencing that leaf as fully as it can be experienced. And so that's Kant's take on it. And so I, after having this experience and sort of recognizing these things, I said, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense. Now I understand a bit more of Kant than I used to. And it's the same thing with Plato and his theory of the forms, saying that reality, um, and Plato says reality at its basis is this form of the good, that everything in the universe is this great magical thing, and that we are limited uh, by our perceptual faculties at experiencing reality. But reality in its fundamental form is good. And so 
the interpretation there that Plato had is very similar to the one that I had of having this experience of, oh, wow, I've understood that reality, this magical thing lies at the basis of everything. The emotional impact of realizing that and realizing that that is true and that there is some foundational level of truth that I can grasp onto, that's an overwhelmingly positive, joyful experience. And so Plato and many other people in different lands, different countries, different nations, different religions have had the same experience of reality as this magical thing that we can't know anything about. Any attempt to describe it is is paltry because we'll describe this leaf as green, whereas like who knows what the hell it is? How green could it be? Maybe if similar to the dog to us, we have better color vision than the dog. Maybe some overhuman person a millennia for now will have a, a different experience of green, a more profound experience of green. But anyway, this magical reality seems to be really good because we are born, there are great things in the universe, and everything seems to be so infinite in its, in its existence. And even though we only see a paltry example of it, that green, green as such, must be, there must be an infinite version of green that we only see a small representation of. And so that's Plato's theory of the forms, and that's his allegory of the cave, that we're essentially just looking at the silhouettes of things. We're looking at the pale representation of what things actually are and that things are so much more infinitely deep in their true reality that we only catch a small part of. And so similar with the green thing, Plato abstracts and says, okay, well, everything exists. That's a really cool thing. So let's call it the good. Everything in the universe is this form of the good. Uh, everything is this profound one totality that's so amazing and then you can see how it's an easy hop skip and a jump from that realization of plato to christianity's realization of wow this reality that gave birth to everything like that's incredible this magical unknowable thing let's call it god and we are all children of it and that's so good and so amazing and and i feel so loved by the universe and i'm going to treat everyone around me as if they're equal to me in that sense because they are. And so having this first revelation, this first divine revelation, is almost a necessary part of your understanding. If you're going to understand anything about Plato, understand anything about Christianity, understand anything about religion, understand anything about any of these things. Most of the time when you talk about God or religion, I have no idea what the hell people are talking about. People say, oh, oh, some big guy in the sky, like, oh, yeah, you believe in that? And it, from my experience reading the different world religions, diff reading different philosophers, all the serious, real philosophy and religious, religious discussion centers around what I've just described to you. That everything around you is part of this magical entity of being that even though we can describe certain parts of it, from a human perspective, we can't understand what's truly there and we can't understand why it's there or what it's doing or anything like that. And that every world religion, every world philosophy is essentially trying to describe that. And it's trying to put limits on what we can know about it and trying to describe, okay, well, even though I can't know the thing fully, I can't know how green it is, it is still true that it exists, even though I can't, God exists, that this magical reality exists, I can't understand it, but the fact that it still exists and it's still so good means that ethically speaking, I should still treat my neighbor like I treat myself and all that sort of stuff. 
And so I spent a good amount of time exploring these ideas and trying to live with them. And then pretty much as soon as I went started working, everything hit the fan. Um, things started to seem very confusing. I, I was walking around asking myself questions about how green is that leaf really? Like what is this reality going on around me? If this thing is so good and almighty and infinite, why is there suffering? Why, why, why is there so much evil and badness in the world? Um, what is the nature of reality? How do I fit into it? How, how can I, as a limited individual with only a thin understanding of reality based on the categories of reason and the, the ideas and concepts that I have, how can I possibly feel comfortable making any decisions when I, when I know that the world is infinitely more vast and complex than I can ever comprehend? How can I, as a human being, live like that? How can I believe in this world as a, as a, as a great place? I, I'm going to work now, and I'm doing all these things that I hate doing, and I, I, I just want to be able to walk through a garden and hang out with God and, and, and really just revel in the majesty of nature and the majesty of the universe. But I'm going to work, and people are asking me to fill out this Excel spreadsheet, and people are getting mad because this PowerPoint's not ready, and... Like, are, are, what, what's wrong with you people? Don't you recognize how magical this world is? Why do you care about such paltry, stupid stuff? Why do you care about getting this sports car? Why do you care about any of this? Just go and look at a friggin' tree and, like, marvel at how wonderful this universe is and how much of a great experience it is to be alive. And and the ideas, the, the worldview that I was trying to build up to support my life and and follow my goal of being happy and follow my goal of being fulfilled and getting into that flow state it seemed to be being hampered by my human inability to deal with such crazy paradoxes and such weird things that we can't understand and it started to get very very confusing and and eventually as I started reading more philosophy, I, I came into Schopenhauer. So I said, okay, well, I understand Plato now. I understand Christianity now. I understand all these other world religions. Let's get into let's get into some different philosophy. And I started reading Schopenhauer, who's typically known as a very pessimistic philosopher, and he he was interesting from two points of view. One. He, he was one of the first people to say that, okay, this, this magical thing that we can't really know, this being, this God, this, this thing in itself, first of all, it's not a thing in itself. It's not being. It's not God. The thing that we can't see and can't experience is not a static entity that's good. It's a moving entity that nothing in the universe is static, everything is constantly moving, that everything around you, everything you know, is in a process of becoming. And it's not a blind process. For Schopenhauer, it was the will to life, will to existence, that things strove to live and to, and to stay alive at any cost. And 
this is where it gets a bit confusing because this is actually a radical evolution and shift in the way that people think. Um, prior to Schopenhauer, and I think even to a large extent still today, people tend to, to use one of Nietzsche's terms, mummify things. People tend to think that in a word, they have a description of how something has always been. They think that people, places, things tend to be immutable and constant and the same. Um, so prior to the ideas of evolution, people thought, you know, like the universe started and six days later there's a dude named Adam running around and human beings have been here since the start. We've been the same from the start and that um, nothing, nothing has become, everything has always been, that intelligence, uh, strength, speed, uh, humans have always from the dawn of time sort of had the same grasp of the of the things around us and the same characteristics. Whereas Schopenhauer says, no, 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 that's not the way it is. Things have constantly developed. And our way of thinking about things and the fact that we use words and words tend to be static images, static symbols, that the way that we conceive of things, the way that we conceive of people, the way that we conceive of characteristics, the way that we conceive of virtue, the way that we conceive of the universe, it's all wrong because we, we tend to think static instead of in this sense of development and sense of becoming. And so Schopenhauer is the first one to really posit that. And to this day, I think there's still people, many people who, who think that things are static, that human beings from 2000 years ago are the exact same as human beings now. And, and I think even when it comes to evolution, and this is going to come up, I think in next lecture, if this one doesn't take too long, um, people tend to think that I think people, when it comes to evolution and we say, Oh, well, you know, modern humans emerged 250,000 years ago or whatever the dates are. I think if you challenge most people about it, they a they'd never thought about it, but b I think they would think that oh well, two hundred fifty thousand years ago plus one day there was some other thing, and then two hundred fifty thousand years ago there were humans, um, or with the development of language, I think some people say would think oh well you know there was one generation of humans that didn't talk, and then the next day a generation of humans that could talk and it was totally different. And I think our belief in language, I think our belief in, the, in, in how language and reason structure reality leads us to making mistakes like that, which, uh, as we'll find out through more of this podcast, tend to create a lot of mistakes in the way that we think about things. Whereas with language, it probably emerged over several hundred generations, and we're still working on language, although many people are like making language much worse and using more simple words or words that don't make any sense. Uh, same thing with intelligence, that the rational human mind one day just turned on and then that was it. Whereas realistically, it, it sort of leapfrogs through time, that there's this continual development in biology, in social customs, in, in evolution and everything. And that maybe the person who was the most rational, logical person uh, 5,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago, maybe that person, if he was in the top one percentile of his time in being the most intelligent person, 
maybe that person would only be in the 80th percentile today. And that with the passing of each generation, this, this human organism, this big moving bell curve through time is sort of crawling its way forward. That there is no discrete jump from, okay, well, before language, there were like stupid animals. And then with language, one day we got smart animals. And then, bam, the bell curve that we see today for intelligence is the same as was 150,000 years ago. I think that's ridiculous. And so anyway, Schopenhauer came along and said, guys, there's no such thing as being. It's all becoming nothing is static even your conception of yourself as a human being and how you describe yourself don't take that too seriously because you're trying to describe something that is that has a static framework whereas really everything's changing through time so you're constantly being updated you're constantly developing you're constantly changing and so stop thinking static start thinking fluid um, and then schopenhauer was still quite under the sway of christian morality and wanting to lead a, a life filled with love and happiness and whatever but he said that essentially that was impossible because this will this will to existence is essentially evil because this development and the constant growth involved in reality by necessity leads to friction it leads to struggle it leads to it leads to suffering that if everything was just this cool thing and we could all live with god in a garden uh, we could all be happy but since the will since reality itself is this moving growing thing there's this constant battle between all the different aspects of it so there's going to be predators that like start propagating and they they have this will to existence living through them that wants to propagate and when their population grows it it grows at the expense of some other population and those organisms and everything need to suffer and so schopenhauer in his attempt to deal with the fact that there is evil in the world, there is suffering in the world, he ascribed a fundamentally negative aspect to the reality in itself, to God, to, to the will. And he was an important, an important development in, in philosophy generally. And then we get to Nietzsche. I do promise you that I am getting back to Thus Spoke Zarathustra in the section that we started out talking about but i want to first read an excerpt from twilight of the idols uh, which is a book nietzsche wrote towards the end of his life after thus spoke zarathustra and he's got a section in there entitled how the real world at last became a myth and what he's talking about there with real world is is this real world behind the appearances that we've been talking about this god this reality this being with a capital B, Plato's form of the good, this thing that everything in front of us, including us ourselves, is and is made of. And Nietzsche, in the course of six extremely short sections, discusses the evolution of this idea from Plato and Christianity through 2,000 years to essentially him and, and some of the impacts of that on world philosophy on how we humans see ourselves how we see our ultimate goals in life of being happy or being fulfilled or whatever and how we get there and after that i'll be able to get back into thus spoke zarathustra after oh, a 50 minute aside um i do apologize for that but i i'm hoping that over the course of my description of everything here it's become a bit more clear to you what nietzsche is talking about when he's talking about god and people who believe in god and what this God and capital B being are, 
how it transitions from this place of being in love with reality and being able to walk within being immersed in it to this sort of sense of alienation from it uh, through Kant, through Schopenhauer to where it's this evil thing, and then into Nietzsche who sort of course corrects and says, okay, even though all this crazy stuff's happening, let's, let's stop our obsession with things that we can't understand. There's no longer any ethical rules that come from something that we can't understand. And then insipit Zarathustra, insipit Nietzsche, Let's enter Nietzsche and his ideas because that's what's going to set human beings on the right road towards propelling themselves through the future, through time, in a way in accordance with reality so that you can come up with, A, a good goal. The, the first question that I, as a young person, was asking me, what should I do with my life? Nietzsche will help you come up with a goal that jives with how reality is set up compared to any other philosopher or religion. And then secondly, how do I get there? What do I need to do to get there? That's where Nietzsche comes in. That's where thus spoke Zarathustra comes in. That's where um, everything that we're going to read in this book and hear about in this podcast is really going to come in. So let me read this from Twilight of the Idols. How the real world at last became a myth. Subtitle, History of an Error. 1. The real world, attainable to the wise, the pious the virtuous man. He dwells in it. He is it. Paren, oldest form of the idea, relatively sensible, simple, convincing. Transcription of the proposition, I, Plato, am the truth. End paren. So this is the very first experience that I told you about of recognizing that you're part of reality, that you're part of this great awesome almighty thing and 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 the mindset that i needed to have to have that realization uh, it's attainable to the wise the pious the virtuous man he dwells in it you i lived in the real world i was the real world um and here in the parentheses nietzsche substitutes plato for christ but says i plato am the truth uh, in the new testament jesus says uh, i am the way the truth and the light and essentially what he's saying there is that the only real truth that isn't just a human truth are things about metaphysics and things about the existence of reality. And since I am reality, I am the truth. So that's what he's saying here. That's what, in number one, Nietzsche is saying. Two, the real world, unattainable for the moment, the promise to the wise, the pious, the virtuous man. Paren, to the sinner who repents, and paren. New paren, progress of the idea. It grows more refined, more enticing, more incomprehensible. It becomes a woman. It becomes Christian, and paren. So this would be someone having that experience, trying to describe it to someone else, saying, you know, this experience exists, that the real world it's it's you can't attain it right now but it's there and you can attain it but only only promise to the wise the pious the virtuous that oh with the right amount of work and seeing things the right way you'll be able to see it and so it's the progression of the idea it becomes a bit more refined a bit more enticing more woman-like a bit more sexy and mysterious uh, so perhaps even me discussing this over the podcast maybe some of you don't know what the heck i'm talking about but oh it sounds interesting oh maybe there's something to that 
That's what Nietzsche's talking about here. So the idea of the real world, it starts to get a bit more shrouded in mystery. Three, the real world, unattainable, undemonstrable, cannot be promised. But even when merely thought of, a consolation, a duty, an imperative. Paren, fundamentally the same old sun, but shining through mist and skepticism. The idea grown sublime, pale, northerly, Königsbergian, and Paren. So this is essentially where Kant comes in. He says, okay, well, there's this real world. Uh, Plato lived in it, uh, and when he's talking to his disciples, he could sort of promise it, but it's a bit more enticing. And then Kant comes along, and he essentially, he comes along and gives it the rigor of saying, yes, there is this reality, but we can't fully know it. We're limited by our empirical senses at understanding reality. So when Nietzsche says that the idea has grown sublime, pale, northerly, Königsbergian, Kant was from Königsberg, a place in East Germany at the time, and so that's what he's referring to there. And, and it's essentially saying the real world is unattainable. It's there, but we can't know it, and there are limits to our reason and limits to our empirical faculties at trying to attain that thing. But even though it's unattainable and undemonstrable and, and can't even be promised that you can experience it, but when you think of it, it, it can be even thought of as a consolation, a duty, an imperative. So with Kant, he said, Kant said we can't know true reality, even though it's right in front of us everywhere. We can't fully experience it. But he, he maintained the Christian idea that since we are all children of the same thing, since we are all born out of the same wonderful magical reality, we still owe it to each other to treat each other well and not treat each other as a mere means to something. We, we, have, to, we have to treat each other as equals. Even though we can't know anything about reality, it's still there. It's still true to say that we are sons of this amazing thing and we're all equal in that sense. So Nietzsche moves on. Number four. The real world. Unattainable? Unattained at any rate. And if unattained, also unknown. Consequently, also no consolation, no redemption, no duty. How could we have a duty towards something unknown? Paren, the gray of dawn, first yawnings of reason, cock crow of positivism. And so here Nietzsche is taking the idea and, and extending it even further past Kant. It says, you know, okay, well, if reality is unknowable, how can we owe it any duty? How can we take any ethical system from it? You're saying that we're all equal and we're all born from the same thing. How can you say that if you don't know this thing? And so Nietzsche sees this as the first cock crow of positivism, the first sort of yawning of reason, the first time where reason's really coming in and trying to separate these untenable, unexplainable metaphysical claims and trying to put boundaries around them. Number five, the, quote, real world, end quote. An idea no longer of any use, not even a duty any longer. An idea grown useless, 
superfluous. Consequently, a refuted idea. Let us abolish it. Paren. Broad daylight. Breakfast. Return of cheerfulness. And bon sens. Plato blushes for shame. All free spirits run riot. So in here, Nietzsche is referring to the fact that people are starting to get over Christianity, get over these sort of metaphysical imperatives and duties. Um, it's very hard to separate this from Nietzsche's other writings on the subject, but he sees Christianity and the, the values and virtues of Christianity as extremely inimical, extremely antithetical to life, that when Christianity spread from uh, southern Europe up to northern Europe, the, the strong, brutal barbarians of the north, who up until that time were these sort of unbridled, warring people, uh, as soon as they were put under the, as soon as they were put under the teaching of Christianity, they, these beautiful animals were put into a monastery and made sickly and weak and, and told to hate themselves and hate their senses because their senses and their reason lied to them about the nature of reality. That since you can't, since you can't access God and the ring, the thing that's doing that is the fact that your senses are so crappy, you have to shamefully look down on your senses and since since your body wants to have sex and sin and do all these horrible things oh that's a horrible thing because it, it goes against god it goes against treating your fellow man as equal it goes against all these things so shame on you and and constantly living under that oppressive weight of christianity tends to have a very negative impact on life and living things it's sort of like taking a wild horse that's running through the forest and, and doing very well and putting it in a cage and, and trying to stop everything biological and everything uh, passionate and, and, and organic about it. And so here, Nietzsche is saying, this idea no longer has any use. It's not even a duty. We can't get a duty from something that we can't understand. This idea is growing useless. Let, let's get rid of it. And so that's why in Peren he's celebrating, oh, broad daylight breakfast, return of cheerfulness and bon sens, all free spirits run riot. Number six, we have abolished the real world. What world is left? The apparent world, perhaps? But no, with the real world, we have also abolished the apparent world. Peren, midday, moment of the shortest shadow. End of the longest error, zenith of mankind, insipid Zarathustra. So here we have the, the climax of how the real world at last became a myth. And so we see the transition from, okay, recognizing that you live in this magical reality to the, the Kantian thing that says, okay, you can't understand anything about reality, but you still owe a duty to everyone else to behave ethically, to the refutation of this idea of a world behind the scenes. And then Nietzsche closes off by saying, well, what do we have left? We've gotten rid of the world behind the scenes. We've gotten rid of the, the ethical concerns that come from that. Do we have, do we, are we left with mere appearance? Are we left with uh, the world is representation. Are we left with sort of only the thin version of reality? And, and he says, no, with the real world, we have also abolished the apparent world. And so this bifurcation of the world into the real world and the apparent world 
has been a huge, 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 huge thing in the history of mankind. Uh, it's led to Platonism. It's led to Christianity. It's led to the development of every society and every social institution that has built itself on those things. And it has led to this denigration of the apparent world of things of mere appearance of, oh, well, that's only of this world. The only things that matter are truth, honesty, love, and beauty. The bifurcation there, and it's it's a bit complicated. I know I'm talking about things that maybe a lot of you haven't thought about, but it will come up a lot during the course of the rest of the book. Um, Nietzsche, Nietzsche says, no, there is no real world. There is no apparent world. There's just what we have in front of us. And that's the only world we'll ever know. And it's the only world we owe a duty to, owe an imperative to. We don't owe the world to any sort of being behind the scenes. And the apparent world, this sort of thin thing that we think we see in front of us, um, even that distinction we should get rid of because that tends to have us devalue the things that we have in front of us. So I think that's a pretty good six-section summary of the history of the real world, the history of reality, and human beings struggle to operate under the ideas of a real world, a god, uh, and a different world than this world. Um, and I think that with that, we can finally get back to section three on believers in a world behind. So this section here that I first read, this first couple paragraphs, where Zarathustra too casts his delusion beyond the human, like all believers in the world behind, the work of a suffering and tortured God, the world seemed to me, where he goes on to describe that the world seemed like a dream and the fable of a God, like colored smoke before the eyes of one divinely discontented, that good and evil and pleasure and pain and I and thou, they all seemed like colored smoke before creative eyes, that it was drunken pleasure for the sufferer to look away from himself and to lose himself, that this world, eternally imperfect, image of an eternal contradiction, an imperfect image, it seemed like a drunken pleasure for its imperfect creator, and that Zarathustra too once cast his delusion beyond the human, like all believers in a world behind, beyond the human in truth. And it goes on here. So this... So this section here really, I think, relates to uh, the experience that I told you about of the six months after leaving school and trying to live with these ideas and trying to really trying to immerse myself in this belief in God thing and, and, and the confusion that comes with it about, well, the, the experience I had of finding God was so profoundly joyful and it's so cool that we all exist and it's so amazing but how come there's still horrible things going on? How come there's still children suffering? How come there's still poverty? How come there's horrible flesh-eating bacteria? How come there's horrible alligators that'll bite you and, and flip over and kill you? Um, there, how is something so wonderful and pure and great able to be so good and evil all at the same time? How... How am I supposed to live in accordance with a philosophy that says that I am the same person as you? Because even though I, I find that to be true in my metaphysical way of thinking, it's very confusing for me to wrap my head around that and to act in that way. And so in this first section of chapter 3 on Believers in a World Behind, Nietzsche's really, really trying to hammer that home, that it seems like a bunch of colored smoke and drunkenness and contradiction 
the belief in God, essentially, if you really try and live with it and you try and build a worldview around it, it's a very confusing, debilitating thing. He goes on to say that it's all human invention. He says, Ah, brothers, this God that I created was human's work and madness, just like all gods. Human he was, and just a meager piece of human and I. From my own ashes and blaze it came to me, this specter, and verily, not from the beyond did it come to me. What happened, my brothers? I overcame myself as a sufferer. I carried my own ashes to the mountain. A brighter flame I made for myself. And behold, the specter then fled from me. So here he says, no, all this created all this creation of gods and all the all the assignment towards this magical reality of different characteristics and and the fact that it's good and the fact that it, it loves everyone that's all human creation and human madness uh, he says here that how did he overcome this himself he overcame himself as a sufferer he carried his own ashes to the mountain uh, and he made for himself a brighter flame there so earlier in the prologue, uh, in section two of the prologue, when Zarathustra runs into the old man in the mountain, um, he says, oh, bef I saw you a long time ago. Uh, before you carried your ashes to the mountain, now, do you, now would you carry your fire to the valley? And so here there's a cool little reference back to that, that, okay, the historical Zarathustra being the first person, the first religious prophet to introduce good and evil into the basis of things, he believed in this God and he ascribed good and evil. He ascribed these different human characteristics into reality. He tried living with it, but the living with it was so confusing and it seemed like colored smoke and drunkenness and contradiction that he, he burnt himself out with these ideas and overcame himself as a sufferer to get past them. He had to make a brighter flame for himself. He had to find something more honest, more truthful, more in line with what it takes to live as a human being. Uh, Zarathustra goes on. Suffering it would be for me now, and torture for one who has convalesced, to believe in such specters. Suffering it would be for me now, and in abasement. Thus do I talk to believers in a world behind. Suffering it was in incapacity, that is what created all worlds behind, and that brief madness of happiness which only the greatest sufferer experiences. So he's saying that it's, for someone who's gotten better and gotten past the religious mindset, uh, that A, there is a place to go that is past that religious mindset, even though for 2,000 years everyone thought it was the, the pinnacle of truth, the pinnacle of reason, the pinnacle of everything, but there's a spot past that because if you try and live with it, even though it might seem very true to you, it's suffering and, and you can't live that way. And I love the line here that it was suffering and incapacity that created all worlds behind and that brief madness of happiness, which only the greatest sufferer experiences. Uh, this one really stands out to me personally because for me, it was that search for happiness. It was trying to deal with all the nihilistic thoughts that I had been having that really said, okay, well, all the negative judgments that I have, all the things that I'm constantly thinking of, I'm going to put those aside 
that led to me having my sort of mystical revelation about unity with God and how wonderful and loving it was. And finally, there seemed to be some basis upon which to make decisions and some reason for happiness. And it was it was really a brief madness of happiness, which only someone who had been suffering quite a bit from my life and from humanity and reality that, that created that. And so I think he really calls it out here. He goes on. Weariness that wants to attain the ultimate in a single leap, in a leap of death. A poor and ignorant weariness that does not even want to will anymore. That is what created all gods and worlds behind. Believe me now, my brothers. The body it was that despaired of the body, that groped with the fingers of deluded spirit for the ultimate walls. Believe me now, my brothers. The body it was that despaired of the earth that heard the belly of being talk to it. And then it wanted to break through those ultimate walls with its head, and not only with its head, over to that other world. But the other world is well concealed from humans, that dehumaned, unhuman world that is a heavenly nothing, and the belly of being does not speak to humans at all, except as a human. For Nietzsche... He doesn't look so much at the claims that people are making about God, but he looks at what kind of people are making these descriptions and why do they need a belief in God? Why do they need a belief in love? Why do they need this? As a biological organism, what, what, what need do you have and what kind of person are you to have that need? And so he's saying throughout this section that it's really sort of a suffering, weak type of person that needs these beliefs in order to keep going, in order to have some sort of contentment in life. So although Nietzsche does have very good arguments against uh, the descriptions of God and the, the sort of classical classifications of him, for Nietzsche, a lot of it is the question of what type of human being are you? Uh, given that we've all developed and evolved and that everything about humans has developed through time, he thinks that, you know, there are certain people that are leading toward the last human that need repose, they need comfort, they need to take it easy, and that it's the same sort of weak people that lead to that, that also have this need for God, that they can't have, they're not healthy, they're not physically healthy, um, they don't have enough in their human life. They don't have enough positivity. They don't have enough things that they're working towards that give them pleasure, that expand their their capabilities, that need to invent a God that is pure love and invent a world that is pure love and goodness so that they can look poorly on this world, on the world of mere appearance, and say, oh, well, you know, that guy's only rich and successful because, oh, he's a real jerk and he's a sinner, but I, I, I'm a good person and I'm going to go to heaven when I die. That it's the arguments for and against God are, are, say a lot more about the type of person who hold them than they do about God. So Nietzsche goes on. Verily, hard to demonstrate is all being and hard to induce to speak. Tell me, brothers, is not the most peculiar of all things still the best demonstrated? Yes, this eye, and the eye's contradiction and confusion, still speak most honestly of its being, this creating, willing, valuing eye, that is the measure and value of things. And this most honest being, the eye, it talks of the body, 
and it still wants the body, even when it poetizes and raves and flutters with broken wings. Ever more honestly it learns to talk, the I, and the more it learns, the more it finds words and honors for body and earth. A new pride my eye taught me, which I now teach to human beings, no longer to bury one's head in the sand of heavenly things, but to carry it freely, an earthen head, that creates a sense for the earth. A new will do I teach to human beings, to will this path that human beings have walked blindly, and to call it good, and no longer slink away from it, like the sick and the moribund. And so again, using that sort of Schopenhauerian idea of development, that things have come to being, uh, Nietzsche extends that and says, okay, well, it's not this evil will to existence, it's actually will to power, that through time, all inorganic and organic things tend towards an enhanced capability. And so when Nietzsche's talking here about uh, the I, the ego, the I, and the I's contradiction and confusion about trying to live with God. And he, he describes the I as this creating, willing, valuing I that is the measure and value of things. He's really trying to bring valuation and value back to the human. That through time, as the human being developed, the ego developed, and the ability to give value to things, the ability to choose one thing or another, really became an organic function, and that human beings are the source of value of things, rather than things getting their value from God, or things getting their value from the fact that they just exist. That values that stem from those ways of thinking are values that stem from a sick, weak, human way of thinking, and that the correct way of thinking is a strong, healthy humanity with a strong ego that can value things differently. The sick and moribund it was who despised body and earth and invented the heavenly realm and the redemptive drops of blood. But even these sweet and dismal poisons they took from body and earth. From their misery they wanted to escape, and the stars were too far for them. Then they sighed. Would that there were heavenly ways by which to slink off into another state of being and happiness. Then they invented their ruses and potions of blood. From their bodies and this earth they imagined themselves transported, these ingrates. Yet to what did they owe the spasms and rapture of their transports? To their bodies and to this earth. So here he's saying that the sick and moribund, the sick and weak, are the ones who despised their bodies, they hated the earth, they're upset people. They're just weak, sick people who invented the heavenly realm of pure goodness and, and all the wonderful things in order to have some sort of repose and happiness in life. That these things don't exist, they were, they were created and poetized about, that someone just sort of made a nice-sounding fantasy land where people could escape and try and live, and that their ability to do this is based on their body and the earth. That you've, your ability to even come up with this, this idea of heaven is reliant on your body and earth. So the body and the earth are the primary things. They're the primary things to consider because even the notion of God is based on the notion of the earth. Gentle is Zarathustra with the sick. Verily, 
who does not rage against their kinds of comfort and ingratitude. May they become convalescents and overcomers and create for themselves a higher body. Nor is Zarathustra angry with the convalescent when he eyes his delusion tenderly and at midnight sneaks around the grave of his god. But even his tears still suggest to me sickness and a sick body. There have always been many sick people among those who poetize and long for God. Furiously they hate the one who understands, and that youngest among the virtues, which is called honesty. Backwards they always look toward dark ages. Then indeed were delusion and faith another matter. The delirium of reason was God's similarity, and doubt was a sin. All too well I know those who are God-similar. They want to be believed in, and that doubt should be a sin. All too well I also know what they themselves believe in most. Verily, not in worlds behind and redemptive drops of blood, but the body is what they too believe in most, and their own body is their thing in itself. But a sickly thing it is to them, and gladly would they get out of their own skins. Therefore they listen to the preachers of death, and themselves preach about worlds behind. Listen, rather, my brothers, to the voice of the healthy body. A more honest and purer voice is this. More honestly and purely does the healthy body talk, being complete and foursquare, and it talks of the sense of the earth. Thus spoke Zarathustra. So this whole section, I apologize for the length. It was very difficult for me to talk about because I needed to first describe where the religious mindset comes from, where Platonism comes from, where Christianity comes from, because that will be very important for us understanding why Nietzsche considers some things important and other things unimportant. We're going to get later on into the book into this notion of people being equal. And Nietzsche 100% disagrees with that. He says that in no way are we equal. Human beings are all completely different, and through time, different countries, different groups of people developed in different ways. We all have different attributes that, and things that we're good at. And, and it's only in the word human that we're equal. And, and it's a consequence of one, language sort of equalizing everything, that when you have a word for something, you tend to think of everything that falls in that category as being the same. So if I were to say to you, I'm getting some flowers, everyone who hears that is going to think of different flowers, but you're going to say, oh, well, they're all flowers, but they're all completely different. They all have different uh, requirements to grow. They all last a bit longer or shorter than each other. They, they, they have different colors. They're all very different so it's one based on this lingual, it's based on this lingual fetish that humans have for equalizing things when you have a word for them. And then secondly, it's based on the Christian idea of we're all born out of the same reality, so in some way we're all equal. Nietzsche says, yeah, we're all born out of the same reality, but similar to what Schopenhauer is saying, this reality is in a progression, and things are constantly shifting and moving around. So let's, instead of trying to find the metaphysical intrinsic value of you based on this world that someone invented behind the scenes that was invented by a sick person who's weak and needed to invent this pure heavenly realm to sort of cast doubt on this world, let's actually see what the differences between people are and, and judge accordingly. 
And so it's very important for me to try and describe the religious revelation and the 2,000 years of history and thought that have been built upon that so that I can explain to you why Nietzsche thinks that's a mistake, all the things that are wrong with it, how it's a myth, how it's an error, so that we can move on and see Nietzsche's very pragmatic approach to dealing with the world and looking at what actually is in front of us, how it got there, why things are the way they are, and in a sense give you the second Nietzschean revelation of how the world works so that we can approach ourselves and, and how we interact with the world around us in the best possible way so that in trying to find an answer for how should I live my life, what should I be aiming for, and then an answer to the secondary question of how do I get there, that we're not hung up on any antiquated, useless, broken ways of seeing the world that humans have used up until today in a mistaken attempt to try and live according to false values and false idols. So thank you everyone for sticking with me through this very long episode. And I'll talk to you in the next one.